This podcast is brought to you by NAB. More than money. Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. This week, we welcome back Veronica Morgan to the podcast. Veronica takes us through what it really means when an agent asks for your best and final offer. We also discuss some strategies and tips to navigate the sticky situation. Then, demographer Simon Kustermacher joins us to explain how changes to employment could impact long-term housing demand. It's one of the toughest tasks when buying a home. You've fallen head over heels for a property, you're awaiting auction day to bid, but then the agent asks you to put in your best and final offer. Do you overcompensate by putting in a higher offer than you want to in a bid to try to beat other buyers or try your luck with a lowball offer in the hopes there is little competition? It's a precarious position many buyers find themselves in, trying to put a price on a home they love without overpaying or missing out altogether. Joining us again on the podcast to walk buyers through the best strategy is Veronica Morgan, Principal of Good Deeds Property Buyers and co-host of Location, Location, Location. Veronica, it's great to have you back. Oh, lovely to be back, Alice. Now, can you please take us through the different scenarios where an agent might ask you to put your best foot forward and provide an offer on a home prior to auction or during an expressions of interest campaign? Yes. Well, this is a thing. Okay. There are so many different scenarios. So let's sort of work through them. And the problem is there's no one way in which you'll find all agents operate the same because they don't. And there's a different motivations behind why they might be encouraging offers or trying to get an offer out of you. Sometimes they're bluffing you. Sometimes they're legit. And for the average buyer, it's really hard to tell the difference. And, and I have to say, even for a buyer's agent sometimes, and the conversation we have with our clients sometimes is, look, they could be calling our bluff. And so now we have to have the conversation around, well, how much are you willing to risk this property <laughs> to call their bluff back? You know, So it's a very difficult thing to navigate. And I guess if the property is offered for private treaty, it's obvious they're going to try and get an offer. But certainly with an auction campaign, you think, when the agent comes to you and says, oh, look, you know, I've got someone shaping up to make an offer and it looks like it's really good and, you know, you're going to have to put your best foot forward, all that sort of stuff. Well, most buyers just sit there scratching their head going, well, hang on a minute, I, th- I thought it was going to auction. Or they might have been thinking, well, why couldn't I have been the first one? You know, I don't want to go to auction either. And so I think what buyers need to understand is if they can backpedal a little bit because FOMO and urgency is what agents are seeking to create and sometimes it is part of their process to flush out the strongest buyer and sometimes it is because they've had an offer and trying to tell the difference between which of those two scenarios it is is really hard. I think the thing that buyers need to understand is that they need to have a very, very clear idea not only on what their property is worth in the context of the market but what they're prepared to pay for it if they have to. And is it worth the buyer knowing that sort of number or that strategy a week prior to auction then in that case, knowing that if that happens and and the vendor does pull the trigger early, that they've made that decision in a a composed and controlled environment rather than Thursday night at 7pm at night or something? (laughs) Yes, you hit the nail on the head. 
the worst thing about trying to make up your mind as to how far you're prepared to go once the negotiations have actually commenced or even if you're at the auction is that you are under way more intense pressure and you are going to think a lot less clearly than you would if you have actually stepped this out ahead of time and pressure tested that limit ahead of time. So the thing is with agents, they will try to encourage you to make an offer on a property before the auction if they're worried that they don't have the competition that they need and by the time you get to auction, you're going to know that. So, Veronica, on that note, I was just thinking as you were talking then, is it more likely that this will happen in certain types of of a market cycle? Like, do, like do, do you feel this is more prevalent when, for example? Yeah, absolutely. In a hot market, the agents very rarely will encourage offers and they don't even want to entertain them in a slow market. And even now, even though in New South Wales, certainly in Sydney, in a Sydney, a house, a family house, very competitive at the moment. Even first home buyers, very competitive. And even now, there's still a level of uncertainty due to COVID. And so because of that uncertainty, we're finding that agents are still engineering these offers. Mm. And without sounding utterly cynical, how much can one believe the agent when you get this call saying, you need to put in your best offer now, I've got buyers circling? How much truth is in that? (laughs) Not a lot most of the time, not a lot of truth. And so you got to ask really specific questions such as, what sort of level does that need to be at for the vendor to accept it? and sell before auction. The clearer and more defined they are in their answer, the more reliable it is. And the more fluffy they are, if it sort of smells a bit off, it could be a bluff. But the problem is, right, in this bluff, yes, they could be bluffing. You might nearly fall for it, but will someone else fall for it? And if they fall for it, then it is going to sell. And let's take it one step forward then. So what should buyers do if they're the highest bidder at an auction and then they are asked to put their best offer in? What should happen then? Yeah, I've created a a mini course with a business partner, Megan Wells, a mini course on teaching people how to work at what price to pay. So it's homebuyeracademy.com.au forward slash free course. And in that, it's three short videos, it explains the process of actually researching the market and coming up with the price to pay. And it's so important that you do that before you get to auction because not just if it gets competitive to decide to know when to walk away, but if in the event that you are the highest bidder, knowing what it's worth can help you know whether you need to continue to negotiate or whether that vendor is just crazy with their price expectation and you need to walk away. And so what often happens at an auction when you're the highest bidder, I hear buyers say this all the time, I go, well, I'm not going to bid against myself. And that's fine if you're at a price where you think, actually, anything more than this is crazy. But if you're under that level, if you're under the level that's really fair price, then you think, look, if they priced it at that property and they put an asking price on it, you know, they're going to get other buyers. It's reasonable to expect that they'll have other buyers come along and pay that money. Then negotiate. You know, this idea of I'm bidding against myself, just put that aside. You know, now it's about negotiating. Mm. Veronica, just finally, what's your sort of philosophy on ideas around people negotiating things on settlement or, you know, signing the contract immediately or whatever other levers a buyer or seller may want to engage if everybody's inflexible on price? Yeah. Look, settlement period can be 
very useful at times. I mean, a few years back, I actually bought a property prior to auction and I don't like buying prior to auction the day before auction, by the way, usually is because they don't really want to go to auction because it's not going to be that competitive. But in this particular case, I had this agent and I knew this property was competitive and I couldn't understand why he was absolutely pushing for an offer. And finally, I got to the bottom of it from him and he told me, he finally fessed up and he said, look, the owners have actually bought something else and they are on the cusp of retirement and their bank won't give them bridging and they have to settle in six weeks. They don't have a choice. And every other buyer needs to sell before they can buy and they're all asking for 12-week settlement. And as soon as he said that to me, I went, and I knew my buyers could actually shorten their settlement. We'd ask for 12 weeks as well because my guys had to sell, but they had bridging in place. So I went back to them. I said, I think I can save you a fair bit of money if we buy this today with a six-week settlement. And so I can't remember how much money. I think I saved them about $150,000 because they were prepared to go to auction and pay a lot more than that. And Veronica, in that instance, how did you extract that information from the agent? Like how, how could you find out what no one else could obviously find out on that settlement, on that detail around the settlement? Actually, I forgot a little important part of that story and that is I don't think the vendors fessed up to the agent early on. That's actually, I think, part of the problem. They finally fessed up to the agent and the agent probably could have done something with it had he known earlier. And this is the other thing behind it too. You know, you've got owners not necessarily trusting in their agents sometimes. So sometimes, yeah, but I think too that you know, if you dealt with enough agents, you've got enough, you've had enough vague answers to questions to, mm. to think, uh, did that really help? You know, <laughs> why are they selling? Oh, they're moving closer to family. Mm, really? Uh, um, you know, so yes, you can ask. I, I'm not sure of the quality of the answer until things get a bit more pointy. Mm. This is a complex area, Veronica, and I really appreciate you drilling that down for us today and offering some insights into what you experienced over the years. It's it's utterly fascinating and, um, yeah, all the more respect <laughs> to you for somehow navigating through this very thorny area for people. Absolute pleasure. As you can tell, I sort of find it fascinating. So <laughs> just, I'm, I'm so happy to talk about it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Veronica Morgan. Great to catch up with you. Thanks, Alice. There's been a lot of discussion in recent months and on this podcast about how people's preferences for what they want in a home and where they want to live is changing as a result of the pandemic. We've seen more people turn their backs on inner city living and look to larger homes in the suburban outskirts and regional areas. Whether this will last is, of course, the big question. Joining us today is demographer Simon Kustemacher, co-founder and director of the Demographics Group, to discuss how changes to employment could impact housing demand long term. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, Simon, you've recently presented research commissioned by the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation on the impact of employment on housing demand in the context of COVID-19. There's a lot to sort of unravel here, but to start, it sounds like the shift to working from home in recent months could have some long-term impacts on housing demand. Oh, that is most certainly correct. And we always need to remember, though, that the trend towards working from home has not only been driven by COVID-19. This is a ongoing trend that is uh, continuing. It has been um, super turbocharged, if you will, by uh, COVID-19. We had at the 2011 census, we had around 4% of the population working from home, going up to right around 5% at the 2016 census. 
And in 2020, the couple of surveys that we do have access to suggest that around 40 to 50% of the people now work from home. And this won't, of course, be a permanent arrangement. But I do think that if the data from the next census comes around, we'll probably see the number edged to around 10% of the population working from home at any given day of the week. Which, of course, doesn't mean that the majority of people will work from home as a permanent arrangement, but that they will choose to have one or two days per week from home remotely just to make work fit better into their lifestyle. Mm. Now, obviously, our incomes determine what we can afford to buy and where we can afford to buy. But how else will changing employment trends impact housing demand, do you think, Simon? Well, if we think about the kind of jobs that we added to Australia over the last five years, we had about half of the new jobs that we created were so-called skill level one jobs. These are highly skilled jobs that require a, a university education. And half of those jobs is, is a very high ratio. So we could only fill those jobs because we had a skilled migration program importing labor from overseas. And these jobs that we created, they really like to cluster in the inner cities of Melbourne and Sydney in particular. That then means that, of course, everybody wants to live reasonably close to those office towers. We call this the central reference point in housing decision making, that, that all the population of Melbourne and Sydney essentially shared the same central reference point. And if you have more people working from home the central reference point gets weakened and more people might be willing to do the extreme commute, a very long commute, if they only have to come into the office two days per week. That then opens up new areas of a city or even regional cities as, as a place of residence for the population. And so what will that mean at the end of the day for demand and affordability, do you think? Well, it will mean that housing demand in commutable regional cities will go up. That means house prices there will grow, which is good for the local market to actually be invigorated. You know, the regional towns do benefit from population coming in. That said, if you are on a low income in a regional town and you have growth occurring, you will be the first one to be priced out of the market. So if this is actually occurring, as we predict, then there will be a bit of a backlash towards the new out-of-towners from the lower end of the market which then creates more demand for affordable housing, affordable housing schemes, social housing options in, in those towns. And so people in that latter category just keep getting pushed further and further out, don't they? Yes. So that is most certainly correct if we talk about family-sized homes. So when we talk about housing, we really need to cut the market uh, into specific slices. The, the main game in property over the next 10 years will be three and four bedroom dwellings simply because the large cohort of millennials, currently the biggest population cohort that we have, is now finally reaching family formation stage. Millennials, of course, we define them as born between 82 and 99. This big millennial cohort is finally reaching family formation stage. That means they will very soon have 1.8 kids. Many of those workers will work from home as well, occasionally. So this is a cohort that needs large homes to fit a study to fit 1.8 kids. Those three, four bedroom homes, they're not available where the millennials are currently living. They're currently living in the inner cities in one or two bedroom dwellings. So if this big millennial cohort uh, is searching for housing, they will go wherever the three and four bedroom homes are. 
And they are currently available in the outer suburbs and in the regional areas. There's lots of dwelling stock, three and four bedroom dwelling stock that is currently occupied by empty nester baby boomers who are not selling. Of course, there's some people downsizing, but not at scale. So what that means is that the middle suburbs will only be opened up to new families once baby boomers become old enough that the family home becomes uh, a hazard, if you will, once it becomes too much work to manage. And this is not going to be happening during the 2020s, where the baby boomers are still too healthy, too happy, too active. So that means that in the 2020s, millennials will need to go wherever three and four bedroom dwellings are on offer. And this is not the middle suburbs. Mm. So on that note, then, what regional cities are best placed to benefit from the changes we've seen in recent months then? Or, or will regional Australia benefit across the board? Regional Australia will not benefit across the board. The, the important thing is that you will want to be in, in a commuting distance. If, if you are into... In the commuting distance, you'll definitely benefit. These towns, there's nothing speaking against them. They have the big benefit uh, at the moment as well that, you know, once, we, once we're out of the pandemic, we'll have a very high unemployment rate. I'll leave the economists to fight over what the unemployment rate will be, but it will be high. And the easiest way for any government to create jobs is to invest heavily into infrastructure. We've already seen billions of dollars of the infrastructure pipeline being brought forward. And the majority of these infrastructure projects that we are building, that we are investing in, are tasked with improving the connectivity between regional centers and capital cities. So that means we're bringing, metaphorically speaking, the regional cities closer to the capital cities. And that's that's great. It's, it's a smart move. It's, it's well overdue to improve rail connections and that's that's fine. So this will benefit those regional cities. What we then also could expect is more of the sponge city effect in, in regional Australia, which means that uh, if, if you look around the Australian continent, you quite often see that a regional city like like a Horsham or a Ballina is is growing at, at really nice, nice rates. Uh, but the surrounding little towns are declining. And that's because you have a aging population mm. in those towns. You have farm aggregations occurring, so there are fewer jobs going around the small towns. And the remaining population of those small towns, in order to find work, they go to the next big regional town. You know, it's not a shift that if we say regional Australia is growing, that every little Australian town is guaranteed to benefit from this. So another point I wanted to touch on was how different price segments of the market may fare in the years ahead. And you've mentioned that you're expecting the bottom ends of the market to see strong demand. What will happen at the top end, do you think? So the really important thing about the Australian housing market in the next 10 years, I would say, is that it is going to increasingly divide into top end and bottom end of the market. If we look at the Australian workforce, in the 1970s, we had a workforce where most jobs were middle-skilled, middle-income jobs. Sure, there were a couple of rich folks. Sure, there were a couple of poor folks. But essentially, we were a middle-class, centrist country. By now, this was flipped on the head. We, over the last years, we always created many, many high-income jobs and many, many low-income jobs. But we didn't create any new middle-income jobs. So our work profile now looks like a U. That means if you provide housing to Australians, you either increasingly service the top end of the market or the low end of the market. 
And the low end of the market is probably not a very financially lucrative sector to play in because the margins are very thin. And so we might expect that we will see more social housing intervention in some way or form in the market there. So the market is increasingly dividing. If you provide high quality, top end of the market, dwellings, even apartments, you'll be doing fine. If you're providing uh, social housing, somehow you manage to get it financed, um, you'll be doing fine. If you're providing those standard uh, quarter acre block, simple houses, the market for those is is shrinking because the top end of the market is looking down upon those houses and the bottom end of the market uh, looks at those houses and thinks they're, they'll be forever out of reach. So it'll be a more difficult market to play in if you target the center. That also means that that a, a well-beloved measure like the median house price becomes increasingly uh, uh, silly, really, because uh, you would only need to look at median house prices in, in very, very narrow geographic pockets in order to, to get some sort of meaningful movement out of it. Mm. Simon, thank you. You've given us really a fascinating insight into what our futures will probably very well indeed look like. So thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for joining us. If there's a topic you'd like us to answer or you want to share a property story or experience that you've had, drop me an email at propertyunpacked@domain.com.au. Talk to you next week. This podcast is brought to you by NAB. More than money. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. This episode was produced by Adrian Lowe, Kate Burke and Danielle Janopoulos. It was edited and mixed by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au.